God and government, and specifically, I should say, civil government, because as Pastor Joe said earlier, government includes the self and the family and the church and other institutions as well. So throughout this speech, if I ever just say government, it's just me being lazy and I don't feel like saying the word civil in front of government. And sometimes when you see our government acting, you wonder if they're civil at all. But um, that's what I mean when I'm talking about government. I'm talking about the civil government, the state and I want to talk about uh, a little bit about uh, Christian engagement in politics. And I'm going to end, or the last three quarters of my speech, uh, is going to focus on three different issues. Human trafficking and prostitution, euthanasia, and abortion. I'll spend about 15 minutes on each and what it means to be a, a Christian voice on those issues, also as we engage with the state. But first, a few um, opening, uh, opening comments. Some people have told me that politics is the art of the possible, doing what can be done in the, situ in the situation in which we find ourselves. Would it be easier to just switch to this one, or what do you think? Yeah? We'll try that. <clears throat> anyway, and, uh, and I think that there's some truth to that, but you can't confuse that, doing what is possible, with the pragmatism that Pastor Joe was critiquing earlier today. Doing the possible, I think, from a Christian perspective, means being prudent. Prudence is a virtue. C.S. Lewis talks about it in Mere Christianity. And I think that we need to be prudent when we do our political engagement. That should not be confused with uh, pragmatism or cowardice. Uh, cowardice obviously is not uh, a Christian response to political issues. There's also the role of the Christian as being a prophetic voice, uh, one that seeks to speak the truth to those in power, truly speaking truth to power, not just in a hip, cliche sort of way, but in a, in a true and fundamental way. And so as individual citizens, I think we all have a role as an individual citizen to speak to those who have been elected to represent us using our prophetic calling, speaking the truth to them, principled on various issues. Also, the church has a prophetic role to speak the truth on various political issues to our elected representatives. Uh, but that, that can change, the message can uh, change ever so slightly, not in, its, not in its focus, not in what it's um, saying as a bottom line, but in the way that it is said if you're a different type of organization. So, for example, I work for the Association for Reform Political Action, and I speak with many different MPs, senators, on advocating for various different uh, laws or advocating against other types of laws. When I meet with them, I speak the truth uh, to them, what would be good principled law, what would be bad unprincipled law. And uh, with some of them, I will point directly to scripture outlining what God says on this issue or that issue. And other times I might spend a whole lot less time on scripture simply because they've already rejected the authority of scripture. So I, can, I will never hide the fact that I'm a Christian. I will never uh, hide the fact that God has something to say about this issue as well. But it would be prudent to spend more time on that area that that particular MP or that particular senator is already on the same page with me on. And I'll, I'll talk my way through that uh, using the various uh, issues, uh, abortion, assisted suicide, as well as um, prostitution in a moment. We also have to understand what the role of the state is. And the role of the state, uh, I think, in Romans 13 is, is to restrain evil. The state cannot eliminate evil. Evil is with us until, until Christ returns. But it's also 
there is a role given to the family, there's a role given to the individual, and a role given to the church that, that is different than the state. And some Christians uh, think that there is no role for the state, that these other institutions should do it all, which is a false view. But there's others who think that the state ought to do it all, which is also a false view. And I think when we understand that, that the state has a very specific role to restrain evil and to reward good, that when we understand that properly, then we can do Christian engagement with politics properly. Wayne Grudem, in his big uh, book, thick book, called Politics According to the Bible, he outlines five views, five wrong views of Christian engagement with government, with civil government. One wrong view is that the government should compel religion. So when, when I engage with the government, uh, mainly in Ottawa, I, I don't advocate that they compel religion, compel a particular religion on all citizens. Neither, though, should government exclude religion. They should not say, well, you're a Christian, so therefore I can't really listen to you. Can you come back and tell that to me in secular ways so that I can now enact this or that law? No, the government should be listening to its citizens. Every citizen has a particular religious worldview, whether it's uh, Christian or Islamic or uh, Buddhist or humanist. Uh, These are all various religious uh, views. And the government uh, should be able to listen to all of its all of its um, citizens, but that it can't just say, well, because you're a Christian, we're not, we're not going to listen to you at all. Another wrong view of government is that all government is evil and demonic. It's not true. We know from, from Scripture, 1 Peter, uh, Romans 13, elsewhere, that God institutes our civil governments. Uh, another wrong view is that we should only do evangelism, not politics. And the corollary is other wrong view is that we should only do politics and not evangelism. It's a both and, not an either or. And so Grudem puts forward a better solution, what he says is significant Christian influence on government. And by that he means, I'm quoting here, significant influence does not mean angry, belligerent, intolerant, judgmental, red-faced, and hate-filled influence, but rather winsome, kind, thoughtful, loving, persuasive influence that is suitable to each circumstance and that always protects the other person's right to disagree, but that is also, and this is key because many Christians forget this part, that is also uncompromising about the truthfulness and moral goodness of the teaching of God's word. I give one caveat to what Grudem says here, and that is that sometimes, even though you as a Christian are being winsome, kind, thoughtful, loving, persuasive, other people, because of what you say, will nevertheless think you're being angry, belligerent, intolerant, judgmental, red-faced, and hateful. It's just the nature of this game, uh, sadly. My final uh, word of introduction before I get into those three topics is that communication is about what is heard, not about what is said. This has been something I've learned over the last uh, four years, and I can say the exact same thing to two different people, and they're going to hear two very different things. They're going to internalize two very different things. And so uh, as communicators, many of you are pastors. As communicators, you know this. What you say in one context to one particular type of person if you said the exact same thing in a different context to a different type of person, could be interpreted totally differently. And the same is true with politics. If I'm speaking to an NDP member of parliament about an issue that I know we actually have a bit of common ground on, uh, if I communicate to them the same way that I would communicate to a conservative member of parliament, uh, I will probably lose that connection with that NDP member of parliament. And so we have to be careful about the words that we we use and and choose to use. The um, 
How many of you have heard of the concept, the Overton window? No one. One. We got one. Okay. So that's okay, because then I can just explain it. Overton window is a term used to describe how acceptable an idea is to the public or where this idea would fall on a wide spectrum of acceptability. So this spectrum starts on the one side as being totally unacceptable, and it ends on the other side with the idea as being so well thought of by the public that they've become policy. So you go from unthinkable to radical to tolerable to acceptable to sensible to popular to policy. And so the Overton window shifts along this scale um, on various different issues. So our job, part of our job as Christians, uh, both culturally and politically, is to, speak, is to speak the unthinkable to make it less so. To speak the radical repeatedly makes it tolerable. And it's only through repetition that common sense remains common. So our job as a Christian community, uh, infusing the culture or, or uh, informing the culture and then also speaking to politics, is to shift the Overton window on some issues from the unthinkable or the intolerable to the popular and the policy. And that only happens, that only happens when people courageously stand up. Okay, so for example, taking a historic example, segregation would not have changed if some people did not courageously stand up and said this is wrong and then persisted with that message. The status quo uh, persists when everyone else goes with the flow. So um, let's take, uh, as, a, as an example, before I get into those other three, let's just take one other example, because uh, I heard Pastor Boot making some reference to it very briefly. So contrary, contrary to what the media might tell you, it does not take courage to stand up on the issue of transgender rights. To be clear, I think that every person who identifies as transgendered should have the same rights as I do. They should be protected in law. Uh, they should not be abused or bullied. But that doesn't mean that they should have extra special rights more than I would have. For example, the right to use whichever washroom they want, the right to dress in uh, particular clothes and be celebrated for doing uh, that. I don't have that right, and neither should they. But it takes courage to stand, for, stand up for common sense on this issue of gender fluidity. Obviously, the media fully supports it. Currently, the law in Canada fully supports it. The academy fully supports it. The marketplace fully supports it. And many mainline churches also fully support it. And they don't just support it. They advance it, and they challenge or demonize anyone who did disagree with it. They even mutilate language, not to mention body parts, to support it. For example, are you anti-science denying transgenders? I heard that on, on a news program once, CBC, in a debate between two people. And I would, when I heard that, I felt like asking, well, which science are you talking about? Biology? Because biology says there's only two, two sexes, not 52. Psychiatry? The leading psychiatrist in Canada, Dr. Benjamin, uh, Dr. Um, I forget his first name, Dr. Berger, he's here in Toronto, he wrote the textbook on psychiatry, and he notes that gender dysphoria is a mental or psychological condition, not an identity, and thus should not be encouraged. So biology, psychology, they both, psychiatry, they both say no. Medicine, a longitudinal study from John Hopkins tracking children who they treated as girls, though biologically they were boys, but they were born without a penis. So they said, okay, we're going to make a decision, we'll treat them as girls. They found that the vast majority of those boys changed back to being male, even though they had been raised female. So who's the anti-science one? Medicine, biology, psychiatry, they all stick with God's order of gender. 
And uh, gender fluidity, it should be said, is a concept from new queer, queer feminist theory that's political. It's not scientific. But it takes courage to say that today. Believe me, it takes a whole lot of courage to say that today. And even most of the uh, Christian organizations on the Hill today just won't touch that issue. It's just too politically sensitive. And so they say, well, in order to be be able to advance our policy on these other issues, we're not going to say anything about that issue because we don't want to be polluted by it. So that idea, gender fluidity, was totally new, uh, or maybe not totally new, I think it has pagan roots, but to the Canadian context, it was very new two decades ago. But because a particular set of people kept repeating that radical, unthinkable, uh, uh, totally intolerable idea 20 years ago, and they kept repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, it became more and more mainstream. So it went from the intolerable to the acceptable to the... um, Uh, Yeah, it went from the unthinkable to the radical to the tolerable to the acceptable to the sensible to now the popular and in most provinces today is even public policy. And if Mr. Trudeau keeps his promise, it will become federal policy in just a few years. So let's look at some of these these issues, abortion, euthanasia, and uh, prostitution. Uh, Let's start with the euthanasia one since it's a very, very pressing current um, issue. If I do run out of time, I'll honor my time. I'll honor one, my, my one hour. Um, if I do run out of time, I'll drop the, uh, the abortion one, but I hope we do have time, and we'll see. Just cut me off when, when, when you need to. So euthanasia-assisted suicide. bit of background first. Our Supreme Court of Canada in February 6th of this past year, of this year, 2015, they struck down our absolute prohibition against assisted suicide. And by doing that, they made it legal for physicians to assist certain people, uh, certain adults who were suffering intolerably uh, to end their life. They gave Parliament just one one year, 12 months, to enact a new law that that created these kinds of exceptions and created safeguards around it so that uh, this didn't become a uh, policy where more and more and more people were being killed without consent and so on. The radical thing about that judgment, while there's many radical things about that judgment, one of them is that they not only struck down the prohibition against assisted suicide, they also struck down another section of the criminal code, and this has been missed in most of the media coverage of the issue. Section 241 is the assisted suicide prohibition. They struck that down. Section 14 of the criminal code, they also struck down. That was a definition uh, section, and that section says that no one can consent to death being inflicted upon them. And even if they do, that can never be a defense in law. That, well, that, that person just consented to their own death, therefore I'm, I'm not guilty of a homicide. The policy reason behind that becomes pretty obvious when you just take a moment to think about it. Imagine somebody says, uh, somebody who's charged with homicide says, well, the person consented to being killed, so you know I'm not guilty of a crime. They consented. How do you test whether or not the person consented? You can't. They can't be called to the stand. You can't cross-examine them. Unlike, for example, sexual assault, so a defense to to a charge of sexual assault is consent. If if somebody consents to certain types of sexual behavior, then the defense is that that person consented. And the way you test that is in a court of law, you put them on the stand and you cross-examine them. Same thing with other types of assault. If you get in a fist fight and it was consensual, uh, if you engaged in the fight uh, equally, then that too is a defense. 
but you can't cross-examine a dead person. So the policy reason behind it is very clear. We don't allow consent for homicide because if you do, you, that can be very, very easily abused. But the Supreme Court coupled that, striking down that definition, saying you can consent, but then they only gave that right to consent to a particular group of people, adults who are severely uh, handicapped or disabled who are suffering intolerably. Now, does that sound bad to you? If it doesn't, that's okay, because of the culture that we're living in, some people don't realize how bad it is until you put it in a different context. Imagine instead that this case was about the right for gay men to commit uh, or to have assistance in, in suicide. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? We can imagine being a gay man would be a terrible existence, and so we're going to let you not only commit suicide, but even have other people help you commit suicide. And in fact, we're going to strike out this section here that says, if you're a gay man, you can't consent to, to commit suicide. Well, that's struck out for you guys. You guys are allowed to commit suicide. What does that do? What does that say about the value of the life of a gay man? It says that we're not going to bother giving you the same kind of legal protection, at least for your life, with homicide provisions, as we would to someone who is not a gay man. It's a a value statement that says your life is not worth protecting to the same degree as everyone else. That's exactly what the Supreme Court said about particular people suffering because of disability or illness. It's it's a phenomenal change in, in public policy. Okay, so where do we go from here? This is where the call for the Christian is, uh, we have to know where we stand on this issue. So there's two things at play. There's the prudence aspect and there's this courageous prophetic voice aspect. Both have to come through. Currently in Canada, the law is still stands. It's still in place at least until February 6, 2016, right? Because the Supreme Court said you got 12 months. So our position at ARPA Canada was we continue to advocate that that law must remain. Supreme Court said it needs to be struck down, but Parliament can respond and say, no way, we're keeping it. They can do that one of two ways. One way is to use the notwithstanding clause that says, okay, thank you very much, Supreme Court, for your opinion. We think otherwise. We're going to keep the law for good public policy reasons. Why? One of which I just outlined to you. The other way that they can do it is that the Supreme Court said this law against assisted suicide is for a very particular uh, is for a very particular purpose. That purpose is to make sure that vulnerable people aren't killed against their will. Parliament could respond and say, well, actually, no, that's not our purpose. In fact, that's what Parliament argued to the Supreme Court in the Supreme Court case. They said the purpose is broader than that. Yes, it's to protect vulnerable people, but it's also to say it is always morally, legally, and socially wrong for some people to intentionally kill other people, and we don't want that in our society. So what Parliament could do now in response to this judgment is say, we believe that it's always socially, legally, and morally wrong for some people to intentionally kill other people, and therefore we're going to build that purpose directly into the letter of the law and then enact the exact same law again. And the nice thing about doing that is that they wouldn't have to do the notwithstanding clause thing, which you have to repeat every five years. That would be a, a fast and hard rule. So that's the principled stand, us arguing on principle that it's always wrong morally, legally, ethically, and socially for us to allow some people to have a license to kill other people. Now, there's also, there has to be prudence involved here as well. So our game plan going into this, this election and post-election was to always, always speak that truth to all of the elected representatives and senators. 
But at the same time, to recognize that should this government, this new government, be one that's committed to legalizing assisted suicide and or euthanasia, that we also work then to mitigate that harm. So there's some Christian voices who, are, who went into this whole thing saying, oh, they're probably going to legalize it anyway. Let's just try to come up with a few restrictions that, that might do some good. Other Christian groups, so that was, to me, very pragmatic. Other Christian groups are going into this saying, we will only ever tell them that they can only pass a law that uh, prohibits abortion, or sorry, uh, euthanasia completely. And we will never, ever entertain or support or encourage any sort of exceptions to that. Very uh, principled, but not so sure if it's prudent. So our, our position, our, our approach has been somewhere in the middle. I'm open, by the way, to criticism of that. By all means, uh, you know, fire hard questions at me during the question period. Our approach has been, we continue to tell them, this is bad, bad public policy. It's immoral. It's against God's law. God says, do not kill. It's pretty, pretty clear. But if you're going to do this wrong thing, if you're going to make this mistake, as you're bent on doing, Mr. Trudeau has said they're going to legalize assisted suicide, then at the very least consider these restrictions to protect as many people as possible. Consider the restriction of uh, videotaping the entire process so that if ever somebody recants their, their consent, that it's captured on video and those people aren't killed anyway. Uh, require um, uh, that, that a judge and a uh, doctor and a lawyer signs off on the fact that consent actually has been given. Require all of these different types of restrictions. And, and by doing so, hopefully, the window of people that actually have access to this is very, very, very small indeed. So you can be both a prophetic voice that continues to remind them of the evil that is assisted suicide, but at the same time be that prudent voice that also makes sure that if this is the track that this country is going down, we at least put up as many safeguards as possible to mitigate the harm, to restrict the evil. Again, as I said, open to a challenge on that, that approach. Uh, one of the things that I handed out to you, uh, two of the things I handed out to you, one of them looks like this. The other one is a policy report on euthanasia, which um, went to all of the members of parliament and senators. You're welcome to read that at your leisure. It goes into much more detail over what I just talked about. But the other one I just want to draw your attention to, if you can pull it out, it's a sliding value of human life card. And this combines both the cultural engagement aspect of this issue as well as the political engagement part of this issue. What many people don't realize is that this, this tab, when, when we legalize assisted suicide for the terminally ill, which the Supreme Court of Canada just did, and slide that tab over a little bit, and you'll see a little bit of a red line, there's actually no legal or logical reason you would allow it for the terminally ill but not allow it for the disabled. And there's no legal or logical reason why you would allow it for disabled but not for seniors. And there's no legal or logical reason why you wouldn't allow it for um, disabled children, for example, or infants, which, by the way, both Belgium and Holland, the Netherlands, have both legalized just recently. And if you allow it for infants, while well, there's no legal or logical reason not to allow it for just those who are sick. And if you allow it for the people who are just sick, well, there's no legal or logical reason not to allow it for someone who's simply depressed, which, again, from the Netherlands, there was a man last year who retired at age 63, was depressed about it, requested assisted suicide. His co-worker said, oh, shucks, that's too bad. All right, let's have a party. Have a party the next day. He was euthanized by the state. So there's no legal or logical reason to stop that sliding scale. It's a logical argument, not a logical fallacy. People often confuse those two. This is a logical argument. This uh, slippery slope argument will happen. 
So use this to explain it to your neighbors, your colleagues, your friends, your um, congregants, whatever. But if you flip it over, you can actually write to your member of parliament. So on the back, there's a note pre-written for you to your member of parliament. And on the back of the slider card, you can actually write a personal note to your MP. And then um, the address is already uh, in the darkened part there. So you just pop this whole thing into, the, um, into an envelope. Don't put a stamp on it because all postage to parliament is free. Pop this into an envelope. Uh, pop it in the mail, and your MP will get this as well. So we've got 3,000 of these distributed already across the country. We hope we can get many, many more out, and we'd encourage you to make use of that as well. Okay, so that's the issue of euthanasia-assisted suicide, where we combine prudence as a virtue, combine with courage, as well as the prophetic voice speaking the truth on that issue. Uh, and, and I hope that our, our parliament then is hearing uh, the truth that way and that harm is uh, at least reduced or evil is restricted or, or contained in some way. Now the issue of prostitution. Commonly referred to as the oldest profession, prostitution is a vice that just won't go away, or so we are told. Even some Christians suggest that there's no sense in trying to, quote-unquote, legislate morality. I hear that one a lot. Do you hear that one a lot? All the time. After all, if we don't have laws against adultery, well, then surely why should there be laws against prostitution? Why should we care if money changes hands? But I think a case can and should be made for using a law to combat prostitution. There are clear biblical principles involved and a pretty convincing practical case to be made as well. So I'm going to begin biblically and then conclude with six arguments for criminalizing prostitution that even, I think, even non-Christians should be able to appreciate and understand. So first, what does the Bible say about prostitution? Well, it takes only a cursory reading of Scripture to discover that God does not like it. He condemns prostitution in Leviticus 21.9, Deuteronomy 23.17-18, Proverbs 23.3, and 2 Kings 23.7, etc. I mean, just read through most of the book of Proverbs, you see a whole lot of references to it. And just as quickly, we will learn that God will as readily forgive these sinners as any others. Joshua 2, Matthew 21, book of Hosea. But there are other issues, or sorry, other passages in Scripture equally relevant that we will only apply to the issue of prostitution if we properly understand what prostitution actually is. And you will see later in this, uh, you'll see later in a moment, not all prostitutes are willing and consensual partners. In fact, I think the social scientific evidence suggests that the vast majority of prostitutes are actually prostituted, so passive tense, prostituted women and children. That means, if this is true, that means that others are prostituting them out against their will in order to make incredible sums of money off of their bodies. So who are these prostituted women? There's a few characteristics, four characteristics that I think are common to most, though not all. One, they're typically fatherless. So not necessarily that they're orphaned, but simply that the father is not present in their lives. Second, the prostituted women, more often than not, are first prostituted while they're still legally children. So they enter the, the sex trade younger than 18. The third, these women usually have very little money, if any at all. Any money that they make goes to their controller, called a pimp, and any food or clothes they get is from the pimp. And then fourth, finally, these girls are often from another place. So what happens most often is that They are kidnapped or taken uh, from their hometown, wherever that might be, and moved to a totally different city, usually in another province, 
where their friends or their relatives are, are unable to make contact with them. So the criminal law calls this aspect of that human trafficking. The RCMP suggests that between 600 to 800 women and children are trafficked into Canada each year for the sex trade, and untold member, uh, numbers are actually trafficked between communities in Canada as well. So it's above the 600 number. So in the Old Testament, there's a group of vulnerable people that come up again and again, and they're often clumped together, the sojourner, the widow, and the fatherless. That trio is sometimes joined with a fourth group, the needy. That phrase is repeated 26 times in the Old Testament alone. So you're seeing the similarities between those four, the the fatherless, the sojourner, the widow, and the needy, and many of the characteristics, though not all, many of the characteristics of prostitutes in Canada today. So it's also clear from Scripture that God has a special place for these vulnerable people. Consider just as one example, Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And not only must we love them by caring for them with food and clothing, we must also defend them with a justice system, a just justice system. Give justice, Psalm 82 says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And Isaiah 1, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We could look at many more passages. Deuteronomy 24, Isaiah 10, Jeremiah 22, Ezekiel 22, Zechariah 7, Malachi 3, 5, where this message is repeated over and over and over again. God also sends a very clear and harsh warning to anyone, especially in this context, pimps and johns, but also those who turn a blind eye. He says this, Cursed, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Deuteronomy 27, 19. So, I think it's clear that the Bible states persuasively that Christians ought to be on guard against adultery in their own lives and ought to speak out and defend those who are forced into prostitution. Likewise, our laws need to defend these vulnerable people. The law ought to target the pimps and the johns. However, prostituted women, who are typically, though again, admittedly not universally victims, should not be criminalized. That's my, my argument. And this is, I'm going to give six reasons why. So that, again, to repeat that, six reasons why I think the law needs to target the pimps and the johns, but not the prostituted women. So the first, first reason is, I don't know how many of you watch movies. Any of you watch the movie Pretty Woman? If you'd rather not admit that, that's totally understandable. <laughs> I have not watched the movie, but I read a summary of it. Any of you watch the movie Taken by Liam Neeson or... He was in it. Yeah, you've watched it. A couple over there. Okay, good. Good. All right. Well, I'm not going to comment on the, the goodness of the movie. but So my first argument is this. Think Taken, not Pretty Woman. So the Nia- Liam Neeson thriller Taken is a more accurate depiction of modern-day prostitution than the Julia Roberts 1990 rom-com Pretty Woman. So in Pretty Woman, I'm told... It's uh, Julia Roberts is this um, escort for hire, and the man that hires her is Richard Gere, a good-looking, very wealthy uh, businessman, a real gentleman who falls in love with her and so on. Taken shows the story of a woman who's kidnapped, forcibly drugged, and then uh, literally sold on, on a market uh, for, for sex. The 
taken one is much more accurate, I think, than the pretty woman one. Um, if you just think about it, the type of men that would actually pay money in order to have sex, they're probably not the good-looking, well, well-dressed, pleasant uh, types that... Anyway, that's a road I don't want to go down right now. Second argument. Prostitution is intimately linked with child sexual exploitation. One tagline, like Twitter-type tagline, is that prostitution is not the oldest profession, it's the oldest oppression. Some suggest, and perhaps for some, prostitution is liberation, but I think most of the time it's exploitation. Statistically speaking, again, most prostitutes are actually prostituted women. Note that passive voice again. Something is done to them, not something that they choose to do themselves. Uh, a social scientific study from 2013 found that a majority, 54% of women, entered the tech sex trade under the age of 18. Again, these are children in the eyes of the law. In the Netherlands, only five years... So they legalized prostitution a number of years ago. They've done all kinds of weird things over there. I, I'm Dutch. I'm allowed to make fun of the Netherlands. Um, we also produced Skilder and Kuiper, so hopefully that balances things out. But five years after legalizing prostitution, the rate of child prostitution in that country jumped by 300%. So there's about 4,000 child prostitutes. Five years later, 15,000. That's illegal. It is illegal, yeah, but it happens uh, anyway. Yeah. Another study estimates that the vast majority, between 80 and 95% of these prostituted women, are controlled by a pimp. So... In the, in the Supreme Court case, which struck down our prostitution laws a couple of years ago, uh, the, the prostitute who was advancing that cause was Terry Bedford, Terry Jean Bedford. And she argued, well, I want, I want the law to be struck down because as it stands now, the law as it relates to pimps, it means I can't hire a bodyguard. But the, vast, the reality is that most people who are posing as the prostitute's bodyguard is actually her pimp. Uh, he's, he's pimping the, this woman out. Uh, not in the case of Terry Jean Bedford. She was very much in control, but she's the exception, not the rule. As I've already pointed out, the third argument is prostitution is intimately linked with human trafficking. Uh, some experts speculate, this is from the RCMP, some experts speculate that a pimp can make between $250,000 and $300,000 a year off of each girl that they own. Uh, in some areas, these pimps even brand their girls. So what farmers do to their cows, these pimps do to these girls. So brand them with an iron. Again, uh, and this is not just happening in you know, Thailand. This is happening here in Canada as well. Uh, prostitution is also, fourth argument, prostitution is also inherently violent. It's violence against women in, in its own right. But we have uh, statistics, and you'll see this in the report that I handed out to you in a table, that, again, the vast majority, two-thirds or higher, some as high as 91%, are physically assaulted, threatened, raped, raped repeatedly, um, or, or abused as a child. Uh, prostitution, like other forms of sexual immorality, like pornography, they fuel rape in a rape culture. Uh, more could be said about that. And finally, six, the law should target those who drive the trade. The basic economic proposition here. Target not the uh, supply, but the demand. So targeting the pimps and the johns cuts down on the demand, especially the johns. The, the way Canada's law was up until it was struck down in 2013, the way that that law was, we saw when people were charged with a prostitution-related offense, 33% of the time, a woman, a prostitute, would end up in jail. 3% of the time, the man would end up in jail. Just the nature of 
the, the power struggle between the two. The man usually had some money, could afford a good defense lawyer and so on. He would avoid jail 97% of the time. The prostitute would only avoid jail two-thirds of the time. Um, so by striking down that law, the Supreme Court was trying to, I think, was trying to uh, even the playing field a little bit. We advocated for a new law, and in fact, in 2014, uh, the Harper government passed what I think actually was the best piece of legislation in his nine-year term was the new anti-trafficking and uh, prostitution law. Um, and there, that law did exactly, actually, as we recommended in our policy report, which I've distributed to you, uh, where they created a new law, targets pimps and johns, decriminalizes the actions of the prostitute. So now the prostitute, who's usually that sojourner, fatherless, um, needy woman, so that she can freely come forward to the police talk about her abuse, talk about her exploitation, and the police can then target appropriately the right person. So here comes the, the question is, well, wait a minute, doesn't that sound like the law then is giving a free pass to prostitutes uh, who actually want to be there, who are doing evil according to Scripture? And I would suggest that it is definitely misleading for me to suggest, if, if I were suggesting I'd be misleading you, if I was suggesting that absolutely every single woman involved in prostitution is a victim, coerced or trafficked. There, that's not true. There are some who are willingly engaged. And the Bible contemplates that reality. For example, if you read uh, Proverbs 30, 20, it says, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. See also Proverbs 2, 16, 5, 20, 6, 24, 7, 5, and 23, 27. Over and over again, it shows that there are some out there who are willfully doing this. However, again, I think this is a minority, although a very vocal minority, and our laws should serve to protect the vulnerable, even if this means inconveniencing, though not criminalizing, that vocal minority. So their inconvenience is a very small price to pay, since their participation in the sex trade compounds the societal and cultural problem of the objectification of women and girls. So, again, although the law will give that small subclass of women a pass on this particular issue, uh, I think it's still a principled, prudent approach to the issue to protect the most amount of people possible, the ones who need the most protection and restrains evil by totally banning any um, the pimps and the johns. I mean, without a customer, the prostitution industry should, theoretically anyway, die out pretty quick. Finally, um, again, as we engage culturally, there should be this word to men. In the book of Proverbs, the teacher warns his son about the adulteress. That's how the ESV puts it. It's called different things. The adulteress is called different things in different uh, translations. But the teacher focuses his lesson on his son and his son's actions. Again, multiple times, over and over. Proverbs 2, 5, 6, 7, 23. He doesn't tell his son, well, if only the prostitute were locked up somewhere, or the king ought to outlaw prostitutes from tempting my son. No, he warns his son, keep your father's commandment. Walk in the way of good. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Do not stray into her path. So I'm not saying that the teacher is giving the prostitute a free pass here. I'm just saying that we, the men need to step up. The men need to take responsibility. They, they got to stop playing the victim card. Oh, not my fault. She seduced me. No, no, no. Men take, take responsibility, show control, man up, be virtuous. And I think Canada's new prostitution law best realizes that principle. It's not perfect, but I think it's the best legislative response we could get on this issue. That's the issue of prostitution. How much time do I have left? 15 minutes. Huh, right on time. All right, so I wanted to spend just a little bit of time on the issue of abortion. And I'm going to spend 
15 minutes on that. In Canada, since 1980, January 28, 1988, Canada has had absolutely zero legal protections whatsoever for the preborn child. None whatsoever. Nothing. What does this mean in effect? This means that when in, Jan- uh, in December of last year, December 2014, a young woman named Cassandra Cake was bludgeoned to death in her home, and then the murderer also tried to burn down the house to hide his crime. That murderer was caught... Um, I think he was the alleged murderer, I have to say, as a lawyer, I guess. He hasn't been found guilty yet. So the alleged murderer was found, arrested, charged with one count of first-degree murder. But Cassie wasn't the only one who died that day. In fact, she was pregnant 30 weeks with a little baby girl named Molly. Molly had a bedroom waiting for her. She had a father waiting for her. She had grandparents and uncles and aunts waiting for her. She had a name, Molly. She was 30 weeks old. Um, But because she was still inside of her mother, the law refused to recognize that Molly even existed. Molly didn't exist in the eyes of the law, therefore only one death happened that night. So because our law does not recognize the preborn child at all, she will not be recognized. Also because our law has no protection for the preborn children in uh, certain communities in Canada, mainly in the lower mainland of BC, but also in other areas, we have a phenomenon called sex-selective abortion, where communities that value men more than women, when they find out the gender of their child and that the child is a woman they'll schedule, or is a girl, they'll schedule an abortion. And so we're seeing on a global scale, for the last 30 years, there's about 200 million girls who have been aborted simply because they're girls. Locally here, or, or nationally here in Canada, we're seeing the same phenomenon, though on a smaller scale. In certain communities, statistically, we see in some communities where the third child is born, where the two previous children were girls, that third child should still be about 105 to 100 ratio of, of, uh, of boy to girl. There's, there's usually about 105 boys born to every 100 girls statistically uh, across the world. But in those communities, we're seeing about 136 boys to 100 girls. That's way off any sort of normal stat. And the only reason that that could possibly be happening is because somebody's telling them, oh, yeah, you're pregnant with a girl, and then they're eliminating, taking care of that girl. Again, because we have no laws in this country, that barbaric practice continues. And in Canada, because of this no law, we also have things like late-term abortion, where a 25-week-old baby can live outside the womb uh, that they can be terminated because they have Down syndrome or they have some other um, disease or disability and the parents want to start over. When we engage on this issue with Parliament, uh, again, we want to be that voice that is principled, that is speaking the truth, God's truth to our parliamentarians, but also one that is prudent, that speaks to... Um, incremental changes that are still uh, that are still principled without giving up our principles. This has been a very tricky uh, approach for us as an organization. We, we try to explain it in our position paper on, called Direction Matters also, which I distributed to you earlier today. And um, <clears throat> we've gotten some controversy over this. Again, I welcome you to challenge me on this position during the question and answer. I welcome any of the pastors especially to challenge me on this but we've come up with the, uh, the following approach to these things. We continue to be that principled voice to Parliament, to our MPs and to our senators that says, 
To take the life of an innocent human being is always a moral wrong. We know from the sciences unequivocally that from the moment of sperm-egg fusion, a new human being is formed, a complete, unique, living human being. Science says that unequivocally. These preborn children are equal members or ought to be treated as equal members of the human family, and yet our law refuses to recognize them. And so our law ought to recognize them and fully protect them just like they do you and me. That's our principled voice to parliamentarians when we meet with them. Parliamentarians' response every time is, yeah, but it's totally unrealistic, or we can't do that, or Mr. Harper said we're not going to reopen the abortion debate, or whatever. And so we say, okay, we recognize that, uh, that that's the situation today. We recognize that the majority of Canadians seem to be okay with abortion in some instances, uh, and we recognize that you don't want to uh, put forward a law that would protect all human beings equally. Would you then consider instead putting forward a law that does restrict some of the evil? We want you to protect them all, but here's another option. Would you consider putting forward a law that would end sex-selective abortion or at least make it illegal? Uh, it probably wouldn't end it, but it at least put a stumbling block in front of those who want to continue doing it. Would you consider a law that says any uh, doctor who knowingly or should ought or ought to have known that the abortion is for the purposes of gender selection is guilty of a criminal offense and liable to five years in jail? Would you, would you consider that kind of a law? Or would you consider a law that says abortion is now illegal after 20 weeks gestation, thus restricting the evil to the halfway point of pregnancy, uh, although still not a perfect law, it's a restriction on the evil? Or would you consider a pre-born victims of crime law that says where the mother has chosen to keep her child, like Miss Cake did, in Windsor, Ontario, where the mother has made the choice to keep her child, that if anyone else takes that choice away by either, a, either assaulting that mother and thus killing the child, or killing both the mother and the child, that that person should be charged with two counts of homicide. Would you consider one of these laws? And our, our, our position, unless uh, my mind is changed in the question period later today, our position is that is a prudent and still principled approach to restricting the evil of abortion. We want to have a law that protects all uh, human beings equally, but it's not a compromise to suggest that we can restrict it step by step. Compromise is where two parties make mutual concessions in order to arrive at a agreed upon uh, or, or an agreement between them. Both sides give up something in order to reach this this compromise deal. If we have a, law, a, a reality in Canada that says there's no law whatsoever, no protections whatsoever, and we gain some ground by protecting some, we haven't given up anything. We've only taken ground. So I see that not as a um, pragmatic thing. I don't see that as a compromise, but rather it's a prudent taking of ground that we have not got yet. I should say um, in, in closing then that these are not necessarily easy uh, issues to wrestle with. But I, I want to encourage you, especially as pastors, to not buy the lie that churches cannot speak to political issues. Every issue that I just talked about, euthanasia, assisted suicide, abortion, prostitution, as well as gender identity and most other political issues today, were not political issues 100 years ago. 100 years ago, if you talked to a politician and you talked about um, uh, marriage policy, gender identity, and so on, they wouldn't say, oh, that's political. They would say... Oh, that sounds like a family issue, or that sounds like a, a church issue. Uh, it's only become political in the last little while because the state is taking ground from these other governments, from the church, from the family, from the self. 
And so we need to still feel free to speak to those issues. I, I interact quite a bit with pastors, and it's a, actually the ones that I interact with most from the Reformed Christian community especially, I find most of them are actually quite willing to speak to political issues. Um, but uh, there's others, uh, even within the Reformed community, who say, well, I don't know if I should be speaking about that. that sounds too political to me. Baloney. It's not. You have to be that prophetic voice that talks to your congregation so that your congregation can be the salt and light in this culture to redeem it, or, well, Christ redeems it, to change it, to convert it, to point it back to the truth. And unless the pastor leads from the front, the congregation won't follow. You'll have one or two people here or there who might be very active in trying to do something, but the leadership has to come from the front, from the top. Um, So I wish you all the very best, God's blessing on you as you consider these very difficult issues, wrestle with them, but then be that light and that salt uh, so that we can together change the culture and hopefully change the laws for good.